I want this morning to continue with our studies in the third book of Moses, the book of Leviticus. I will remind you of the message of Leviticus. The book is concerned with instructions for worship, especially was it for the guidance of the priests. You compare that to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was a book intended for the guidance of the people generally. But the book of Leviticus is almost all composed of legislation, laws, various divers, ordinances, things to do with ceremony. There is a little bit of history, not much. Chapters 8, 9 and 10 and a part of chapter 24, verse 10 to verse 23. But Leviticus is a pivotal book, you could say that of many books of Scripture, but it's certainly a pivotal book in the Bible. It is a book that speaks to us especially of holiness. Now that message does continue from the emphasis on redemption and instruction that you found in the book of Exodus. But the message of this particular book is concentrated on worship and how that that worship is to be conducted according to God's plan, God's order. You don't just make it up as you go along. You don't just decide this is legitimate, this is not legitimate. God decides. And we believe this, that it's important for us to note the order of worship. Everything in Leviticus is concerned with the maintenance of the true relationship to God. And again, let me say the key word is holiness. And chapter 10 and verse number 3 says, <coughs> Then said Moses unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified or set apart in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. God wants to have a holy people. And there are none of the other books of the Bible that have so many lessons on access to God and worship as Leviticus does. I mentioned that the terms offering and sacrifice occur over 91 times. The word clean and its cognates and its contrasts in terms of something being unclean, are found some 186 times. So it's really important, cleanness and uncleanness. And the message of this book is foundational to the entire emphasis of the Bible. Access to God and fellowship with God are essential to life. Now, obviously, you can only have a relationship with God. You can only have fellowship with God and access to God on the ground of redemption. You can only enjoy this through the sacrifice and through the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But God's order in terms of holiness must always be preserved. And just as the book of Leviticus follows on from the book of Exodus... So, communion or holiness and worship must follow redemption or pardon. We want to speak today about the obligations of fellowship. And particularly, again, 
honing in on the great necessity of holiness. The idea of a new relationship to God, of, of fellowship with God, is the key to the book of Leviticus. In the two main parts of this book, chapters 1 through 17 and chapters 18 through 27, we can see there, first of all, the basis of fellowship in propitiatory sacrifice. You see the first 17 chapters, how they deal with the various offerings, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the trespass offering, and so on. The Day of Atonement, chapter 16. All of these are talking about propitiation. Sacrifice that turns away the wrath and the anger of God. You can't have fellowship with God unless sin is dealt with. But then in the second part of the book, you have the obligations of fellowship. Personal sanctification. And you'll see that that is a theme that runs right through from chapter 18 to the end of the book, chapter 27. So if you like, the first part of Leviticus shows us the Godward foundation of fellowship. And part two reveals the manward condition of fellowship. Godward, manward. Now, as Leviticus is concerned with the subject of fellowship or communion with God, Leviticus is the supreme Old Testament illustration or example, if you like, of a great New Testament truth that is expressed for us in the words of 1 John chapter 1 verse 7. And what a tremendous text that is. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Now, oftentimes when Christians read that verse, they automatically think it's talking about fellowship among Christians. I don't know if that's how you used to think of it, or it might even be how you presently think of it, but if that's the case... That is not correct. Obviously, when we get into fellowship with God, that results in fellowship with one another. But when the Bible says in 1 John 1 verse 7, we have fellowship one with another, it's not talking about Christians having fellowship with Christians. It's talking about Christians having fellowship with God. Look at the context in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. Now there's Christian fellowship. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse number 6, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we walk in darkness and we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. God with us and us with God. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. And that word cleanseth in the original Greek is in the present continuous tense. So the sense of it is, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. That's why it is not wrong 
as some in the assemblies will tell us that it is, to pray that we will have a fresh cleansing in the blood of Christ. It's not wrong, in fact it's very right, that we continue to pray that the Lord would give us a fresh application of the blood, not in salvation, but in sanctification. The blood of Jesus Christ is available to cleanse away our present sins, even the sins that we commit while we are believers. We don't want to commit them, but we do commit them. And the blood is there that we might have fellowship with God. The book of Leviticus is an illustration of 1 John 1 verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, that's holiness. We have fellowship one with another, us with God and God with us, and the blood cleanseth us from all sin. You could say the first part of Leviticus is really saying the blood cleanseth us. It's all about sacrifice, it's all about propitiation, obtaining a right relationship to God by sacrifice. But the second part of Leviticus teaches us that the blood cleanseth us as we walk in the light as he is in the light. Holiness, sanctification. So the great message of Leviticus is that through these two things together, cleansing and walking in the light, we have fellowship with God and God with us. As I say, holiness is an emphasis. It is the great emphasis of the third book of Moses. There are a couple of things that we've already noted in terms of holiness in the fact that the Bible speaks in Leviticus about a holy God. And that's where we must start, always. When we talk about the subject of holiness, we start with the holiness of God. God is holy. And the command he gives to us is, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We serve a holy God. And really, we need more and more to have an appreciation of how holy God is. How much God hates sin. When you read the book of Habakkuk, it tells you that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look upon iniquity. You think of some of the awful things that happen in this world and how it horrifies your heart as a Christian. How infinitely greater is the horror of God Almighty toward that sin. He is infinitely holy. He is ineffably holy. He is perfectly holy. So we do read in the Bible about a holy God and various other things, but I want to focus on some of the other holy things that are emphasized in Leviticus. And obviously with it being the book of the priesthood, the name is Leviticus, we can speak about a holy priesthood. Leviticus refers to a holy priesthood. Now the Lord gives certain criteria for being a priest in Israel. They must come from the tribe of Levi, obviously. But they also must not have any physical defects, nor were they to marry women of whom God disapproved. You see this in chapters 21 and 22 of Leviticus. There are some physical defects that are outlined there, among which a man couldn't have a flat nose. 
He couldn't be a hunchback. He couldn't have various other physical defects that would actually prohibit him and preclude him from acting as a priest. You can read that carefully for yourself, chapter 21 and chapter 22, the various things that would disqualify a man from being a priest. Then when you come to chapter 8 of Leviticus, you will see that the priests were actually set apart in a very elaborate ceremony that involved their being bathed in water and marked by two things, oil and blood. The high priest was anointed with special oil. And all of this is of spiritual significance. It speaks about Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ was filled with the Spirit. He was anointed with the Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach. Isaiah 61 reminds us. That's pictured in the high priest. You will know as well that the priests wore special clothing, garments. And there were certain special laws that didn't apply to the common people that governed their lives. They were held to a higher standard. In every way, the priests of the Lord in the Old Testament demonstrated the fact that they were set apart and therefore they were holy to the Lord. It was to be a holy priesthood. Now, the Levites were in charge of the tabernacle and later they had work to do in the temple. And during those wilderness years when Israel wandered, they were the ones charged to carry the tent, to carry the tabernacle and its furnishings from place to place. We haven't time to look at all the scriptures connected with this, but you can study the first chapter of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 1 from verse 47 to 54, you have that detail. They were responsible to guard the sanctuary of God. First Chronicles 9 verse 19. They were responsible to teach the people the law. In fact, Malachi talked about how that they were to seek the law at his mouth. You'll see this in Deuteronomy chapter 33, from verse 8 to verse 11. You'll also see it later in the Old Testament, in Nehemiah chapter 8, from verse 7 to verse 9. The priests were to teach the people the law. And they were also to do something else. They were to lead the worshippers in praising God. First Chronicles 28 from verse 28 to 32. This was the job of the priests. Only a holy priesthood could approach the altar of God and be acceptable to serve God. You will note in these chapters, for example, in Exodus 28... That if the priests weren't dressed properly, they couldn't serve. You'll see in verse 20 and 21 of Leviticus 30, it says if they didn't wash properly, they were disqualified. That's actually Exodus 30. And then if they tried to serve while they were unclean, Leviticus 22 verse 9, they were in danger of death. Think about that. How important it was for the priests to be fit to serve. I'll just show you that scripture. Leviticus chapter 22, verse 9. They shall therefore keep mine ordinance, lest they bear sin for it, and die therefore if they profane it. 
I, the Lord, do sanctify them. This is really serious stuff. Whenever you study the garments of the high priest, you'll know that he wore a thing called a mitre. It was like a turban on his head. On the front of it, it had a golden plate. And and inscribed on that plate were the words, Holiness to the Lord. Of course, it was in Hebrew, but Holiness to the Lord. Exodus 28.36 And he dared not do anything that would violate that inscription. Holiness to the Lord. To the Lord. He could actually be serving in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in behind the veil and still be in danger of death. Leviticus 16 verse 3 makes that clear. He couldn't go in there without blood. The Bible says that in Hebrews when it's speaking of this very ceremonial. It says, not without blood was he offered for himself and the sins of the people. Now what has that got to do with you and me? A holy priesthood. Well, it has a lot to do with us. It has everything to do with us. Because in the New Testament, we know there is no special sacrificing priesthood. The Church of Rome is behind the times. They're too late. There are no priests anymore. Sacrificing priests. You don't need a priest to pray for you. And to intercede for you. And to offer so-called sacrifices for you. Jesus does this. He is our priest. He's our high priest. But we ourselves, furthermore, are priests. Did you know that? Every Christian, every believer is a priest of God. You'll find this in the book of God in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. They offer up sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Peter goes on to say that you are a holy priesthood. Actually, a kingdom of priests. In the Old Testament, it has been said, God's people had a priesthood. But in the New Testament, God's people are a priesthood. What a tremendous truth that is. You know you're a priest unto God to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. And you'll notice there it says a lot of things about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's giving this greeting from Jesus Christ, verse number 5, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Notice this. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. You and I are a spiritual priesthood. Because you see, in Christ we've been washed. We've been cleansed. And not only that, we've been clothed. Clothed in His righteousness. God hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Furthermore, just like the priests of old, we have been anointed, not physically and literally, but anointed by the Spirit. Ye have an anointing from the Holy One, and ye know all things, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2. And you can read verse 20 and verse 27. And like the priests, we are given access into God's presence. We can come right to the mercy seat. I love the words of Hebrews 10 from verse number 19. 
Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Here's the priest. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say his flesh. There's the priest going inside the veil. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And again, you have tabernacle language here. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's the labor and the cleansing and the washing that took place there. A holy priesthood. But as well as this, Leviticus speaks of a holy people. A holy people. Obviously we've noted this. Exodus 19 verse 6 teaches that God had a purpose for his people, for Israel, that as a nation they would be a kingdom of priests, that they would be a holy nation. And so everything in the life of the Old Testament Jew was considered either holy or common. You'll read this in Leviticus. Something was either holy, that means it was set apart for God's exclusive use, or it was common. And even the common things were divided into clean and unclean. Even the common things, the people could either use them, or they were forbidden to use them. You can study it for yourself. So, the Jewish people had to be really careful to avoid what was unclean. You talk about worrying about washing your hands and having hand sanitizer. These people really had to watch out. They had to make sure everything was clean. Because if they didn't, they could find themselves, to use the biblical term, cut off from the people. Put out of fellowship until they had gone through the proper ceremony to be made clean again. And you see that there were various laws about this. Women and childbirth, they had to be set apart for a certain period of time to fulfill that obligation to be clean. And if someone was to touch something that belonged to a leper or something else that was considered unclean, they would be ceremonially ceremonially unclean themselves. They'd have to go through a period of time of separation and cleansing, and then they would have to return to the camp. Cleanness was very important. And you study Leviticus, you'll see a lot of stuff that you might find, if you weren't careful, sort of boring You might think, well, who wants to read through all of this? Well, you should want to read through all of this. Because it speaks to us of spiritual things. For example, there were laws governing marriage. Laws about childbirth. Laws about diet. Laws about personal hygiene and cleanliness. The quarantining of diseased persons. The burial of the dead. And while those things all certainly involved hygienic benefits to the people, they were all reminders to them that God's people couldn't just live any way they liked. That's what God was telling them. And that's what God's telling us. We have men preaching today who more or less tell their audiences and their congregations, you can come to Jesus and just live whatever way you want. It doesn't matter about sanctification. You just come to Christ as your Savior and that's it. Well, that's not just it. 
Because the Bible says faith without works is dead. It's not true faith. And the idea that you can live just exactly the way you lived before, when you were in your ungodly days, now you're professing to be a Christian and there's no change. The Bible knows nothing of that gospel. That is not the gospel. The true gospel, when it is received and imbibed, it produces what one Puritan called gospel living. Gospel living. Holiness. And because the Israelites were God's chosen people, Leviticus teaches us this, the Jews had to learn to put a difference between the holy and the unholy and between the unclean and the, and the clean. Look at me, look with me, don't look at me, look with me at Leviticus 10, verse 10. Leviticus chapter 10 and verse number 10. And that ye may put difference between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. Look at chapter 11, verse 47. To make a difference between the unclean and the clean. This is something that mattered to God. So it should matter to them. They were not to live like the godless nations around them. They simply were not to live that way. They were to be a distinct and different people. Folks could see the difference. Now you'll see in Leviticus chapters 11 through 17, those, how the Jewish people were distinguished by what they ate. Their diet distinguished them. Their treatment of the newborn and their mothers. Their dealing with dead bodies. And their handling of people with diseases and sores. Now once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur chapter 16, the whole nation was reminded that God, Jehovah God, was a holy God and that the blood being shed was the only way that the people could be cleansed. That's what God was teaching them. The only way that you can be cleansed from your sin is by the washing of blood. Again, what has this got to do with us? Well, God's church. God's church is to be a holy nation in this present evil world. The Lord has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What for? That we might show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. And it's interesting there that the word for showing you might show forth the praises. The word for declare, it's a similar word to that is used about communion. You do show the Lord's death till he come. It means to tell it out or to advertise it. Yes, we are to be witnesses by the way that we live. And that holy nation of Israel in the land of Canaan with its holy priesthood showed to the pagan nations around them the glories of of the true and living God. They were reflecting Him. And isn't that what the church is called to do today? Isn't that our responsibility? The hymn says, Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All His wonderful passion and purity. O Thou Spirit divine, all my nature refine till the beauty of Jesus 
be seen in me. That should be your great ambition. To look like Christ to people who meet you. You know how you meet somebody and you're kind of thinking, I don't know if I know you, but you remind me of somebody. You've had that experience, right? You look just like somebody I know. You remind me of someone. You look just like them. See, that's how it should be in our Christian testimony. People see us. You remind me of Jesus. It was said of Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish preacher, that he was convalescing from an illness in the Holy Land. He went with a group of Christians on a tour, and we're all sitting in a big day room in a hotel. And McShane got up to leave to, I don't know if he went to the restroom or his own room or whatever he was doing. When he left the room, there was a minister. He was from a place called Blair Gowry in Scotland. And he burst into tears. Just burst out crying. And the people were all sitting there all, what in the world is wrong with him? They just couldn't figure out what, what had happened to this man. And when he got himself composed, he pointed toward the door where McShane had just left the room. He said, that is the most Jesus-like man I have ever met in my life. Do we remind people of the Lord? They took knowledge of them. That they have been with Jesus. See, when Israel started to live like the people round about them, like the pagan nations, what they did was to rob God of his glory. And the Lord had to chasten them. The Lord had to take the rod of chastening to them. Because he didn't want them to be like that. He wanted them to be a holy people. Something else in Leviticus that's emphasized, and that is a holy place. A holy place. The people belonged to the Lord because he had redeemed them from the land of Egypt to be his own people, but the land belonged to the Lord. It's called in the Bible the Lord's land. And he gave it to that people with the stipulation that they would do nothing to defile the land. See, a holy God wants a holy people to live in a holy land. You know what's interesting? In chapters 18 through 27, the word land, the word land is used 68 times. So the land was important to the Lord. And in these chapters, for example, Moses named the sins that defiled the land and invited the judgment of God. What were those sins? Chapter 18, immorality. Chapter 19, idolatry. Chapter 20, capital crimes. The sins that would deserve murder. Would deserve uh, capital punishment, rather. And including murder. Blasphemy, chapter 23. And also refusing to let the land have its Sabbath, his, its rest. Continuing to sow your seed and all in a land that needed to lie fallow for a year. That's chapter 25. Now, sadly, the Jewish people committed all of those sins and more. Immorality, idolatry, capital crimes, blasphemy, refusing to give the land a rest. How did God chasten them? 
by allowing Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to overrun Jerusalem and take the people captive. You can read about it in Second Chronicles chapter 36. Now it is true that we do not see in the world today nations that have the same covenant relationship to God that Israel had. I know there are some in Christian circles who would deny that, who think that there is the very same covenant relationship that you can have as a nation with God. But there's no nation like Israel, not even the United States. But nations are still responsible to obey God's moral law and to use the gifts of God wisely. What of this land? What can we say of this land that I know as the song puts it it's a land that you love what of this land is it not guilty of abusing the gifts of God is it not guilty of refusing to obey the laws of God is it not ripe for judgment the very sins that God condemns even in the book of Leviticus murder, deceit, immorality violence, greed blasphemy these are things that are the stuff of movies and the entertainment industry today this is a steady diet of people these days I'm always amused by the Hollywood types wringing their hands about gun violence do you ever see the content of some of the movies that they produce in fact there was one notable character recently on a set who killed somebody with a gun accidentally supposedly what hypocrites but you take the violence and the immorality and the hopping in and out of the bed of infidelity out of movies you wouldn't have much left I did an experiment one day and I went through a listing online of all of the recent movies that had been released out of maybe 30 movies there were two that were rated G for general audiences they were either PG-13 or they were R rated and some of them had no rating because they just were so bad they didn't know what classification to give it unbelievable the filth you could just read the little blurb about each movie to know what it was about without even watching it to know that no Christian should come within a million miles of that. Yet I know people who profess to be Christians, some of them who are in oversight in churches, that run to movie theatres and watch that kind of garbage and take their families to those places or do it at home by getting Netflix. Holiness? Holiness is a joke to some people, but it's not funny. It's time to speak plainly about these things. Now God even gave his people, because of his desire for holiness, an annual calendar to follow to help them appreciate the gifts of God and to use them for his glory. You can read that in Leviticus chapter 23 and chapter 25 until after the Babylonian captivity the Israelites were primarily an agricultural people 
And that's reflected in the laws. The calendar of feasts was tied in directly to the annual harvest that took place. And there were sabbatical years. There was the year of Jubilee. They not only helped to conserve the land, but they also helped to regulate the economy of the nation. God took care of everything. And the ungodly nations around could just look at the land of Israel and see plainly that the Lord was blessing His people and He was caring for them. They were a testimony to the nations. Are Christians a testimony to the ungodly today? Oh, I know they'll laugh. I know they'll mock at your holiness. They'll mock at the way you dress or don't dress, as the case may be. You may be the butt of their jokes. They may look down their nose at you. They may think that you're, you're some strange thing that came in from another planet. But that's okay. If you're following the Word of God, if you're seeking to do as the Lord would have you to do, you'll be a testimony that will be even grudgingly appreciated by some in the world. And there are some who will not appreciate it grudgingly. The Lord will use it to speak to their hearts and will challenge them about their own lives. But there's finally in this book something else that emphasizes the necessity of holiness. And it's true of the whole Bible, actually. This book of Leviticus is about a holy person. Who is that person? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who it is. He took the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and he expounded unto those two in the road to Emmaus in the scriptures the things concerning himself. And the book of Leviticus was included in Moses. And therefore to study this book just like the Bible as a whole and not see the Lord Jesus Christ is to miss the whole point. You see, Hebrews 10 verse 1 puts it this way, that the law was a shadow of good things to come. It was a shadow. I've said before, when you, when you see a shadow, you follow that shadow to where the substance is, whatever's causing the shadow. Something's coming between the light, coming between the sun and the shadow. It's casting a shadow. When you follow the shadow, you come to what's causing the shadow. You come to the substance. Isn't that why we study the Old Testament? Isn't that why we study the types and the ceremonies? It's the shadow, yeah, but it leads us to the substance. It leads us to Christ. It all points to Him. And especially that's true of the Levitical sacrifices and the priestly ministry. We see there the great holy person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's portrayed vividly for us here. And what God is teaching us in these chapters is that there's no amount of good works that you can do, no religious efforts that you can perform that can make you as a sinner to be holy. You can't make yourself holy by doing good things. As we pointed out earlier, 1 John 1, 7, it's only the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that can cleanse us from all sin. Only a risen, glorified Savior, a great high priest and advocate can intercede for us at the throne of God. And he does. Just read what the Lord does in Romans 8 verse 34. He not only died and was, is risen again, but he's at the right hand of God 
and he also maketh intercession for us. See, what the Old Testament Jewish people saw in shadows, believers today can see in the full, bright light of New Testament sunlight. The Lord Jesus Christ. And as we study the book of Leviticus, the message that comes across to us is the importance of holiness. Just as the nation had to beware of that which was unclean and would bring defilement to them, so believers today must, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, cleanse themselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. God wants you and He wants me to be a holy people, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, so that we will show forth the praises of Him who hath called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. The great C.H. Spurgeon, one Sunday morning in 1861, closed his sermon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle with words like these. An unholy church. It is of no use to the world and of no esteem among men. Oh, it is an abomination. Hell's laughter, heaven's abhorrence. Eight times in all in the scripture, God gives this command, Be ye holy, for I am holy. This is... Uh, what we have described as something that is an obligation of fellowship. Now as we close this message, let me just say that the first seven chapters of Leviticus are exclusively to do with the offerings. The next six chapters concern the physical and ceremonial cleansing of the people, both individually and nationally, while the final chapter in this part is given over to emphasizing the one place to which the offerings might be brought, namely the altar within the gate at the tabernacle. In the second part of the book, there's the same kind of orderly progress from chapter 18 to chapter 27. You'll find there regulations concerning the people, regulations concerning the priests, regulations concerning the various feasts of the Lord, and a closely connected word in chapter 24 about the light and the showbread in the sanctuary. And finally, there are regulations concerning Israel's occupancy of the Holy Land, of the land of Canaan. It is also interesting to me that in Leviticus 27 verse 30, it speaks about tithing. It's interesting to observe that the practice of giving the tenth to God is featured here. And it's very clear. It says the tithe is the Lord's. The people talk about giving their tithe to God. No, you don't. You pay your tithe to God. It's already His. It's already His. The tithe is the Lord's. That's what Leviticus 27.30 says. And, And this is just a general reminder to God's people that the use of their wealth should be consistent With the object of their worship, what is it? It's the glory of God. God's glory. And the chief takeaway from the book of Leviticus, if you like, is that the holy God must have a holy people and that this holiness must embrace the entirety of life. It's important 
in the view of the elaborateness of the various laws that are recorded here, to remember that these laws were intended to govern the lives of an obedient and God-fearing people. They weren't merely external and ceremonial or ritual. We have to do this because we have to do it. No, this was the outworking of their relationship to God. These were moral and religious rights. And these laws were intended to govern the thoughts and the intents of their hearts. May we serve the Lord from our hearts. May we want to be a holy people because God demands it. And as I said in a previous message, happiness is holiness. Holiness is happiness. Happy art thou, O Israel, O people saved by the Lord.